Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Niranjan Majay Kumar, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital. In today's episode, we will be speaking about surgical techniques and low cardiac output state with our guest, Dr. Meena Nathan, who is an associate in the Department of Cardiac Surgery and the Director of Cardiac Surgical Clinical Research at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Nathan and I We'll be discussing her talk at PCICS in 2022 regarding surgical factors that affect low cardiac output state and spend some time discussing her work on scoring residual lesions after bypass and how it affects ICU care post-surgery. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Nathan. If you had to summarize your talk in a few words, what would be the biggest take-home points you would like to share with our listeners? The most important thing I would want to share with the audience is that low cardiac output system is multifactorial. Therefore, the management requires a multidisciplinary team as well, because low cardiac output is determined by the patient's preoperative physiologic status and it and various other patient and procedure specific factors. It is dependent on how cardiopulmonary bypass was conducted, the length of the surgery, the complexity of the surgery, and of course, Ongoing low cardiac output is worsened by postoperative complications. So it needs a combined effort of anesthesiologists, perfusionists, surgeons, intensivists, cardiologists to um, better understand and manage patients with low cardiac output. Steve. Thank you. Using that as a segue, in terms of the multifactorial etiology of low cardiac output state, you had divided your talk into pre-surgical, surgical, and post-surgical factors affecting the outcomes. I would like to focus a bit on all three areas in this episode. Apart from the primary anatomical lesion, which obviously has a big impact, what are other factors that you keep in mind while anticipating the severity and occurrence of low cardiac output state post-procedurally? Do things like patient selection and timing of surgery factor into your decision-making? I think Preoperatively, there are several factors, and there appears to be, I mean, it seems that the neonates tend to have a higher risk uh, for low cardiac output state based on the immaturity of the myocardium, based on their uh, recent changes in their physiologic milieu. So I think there are several factors in the preoperative period that determine how the baby will do after surgery. Uh, first of all, the fetal milieu, did the baby have a health, uh, did the mother have a healthy pregnancy? Was the baby growing adequately and, and was the baby delivered at term? Because term babies tend to do much better than premature babies, as you already know. And uh, the presence of any associated genetic abnormalities may have an effect on how the baby does after surgery. Uh, importantly, uh, the preoperative physiologic status, have they gotten over their, you know, PBR issues as they are transitioning from the fetal to the neonatal circulation. So the timing of surgery will also be important. So unless it's an emergency, you don't operate on day zero or day one, you give them about 72 hours for everything to settle down, for them to get used to their new milieu, whether they are cyanotic or not, they get used to being responsible for oxygenation and getting rid of various Mm. metabolites that was being taken care of by the placenta while they were in utero. And additionally, the another important thing is, I think it's important for the surgeon, as well as the intensivists who are taking care of the babies, both pre and post, best understand the anatomy. So 
Adequate preoperative imaging plays a key role because it helps in surgical planning. Mm. It may, in fact, help shorten the duration of surgery and duration of need for cardiopulmonary bypass support during the operation. Because if you go in with a plan, you're better prepared to deal with any new um, I mean, nothing is perfect. Uh, imaging can never be perfect. So if you have the best imaging possible, then you go with a plan so that you are able to take care of any hmm. additional differences that you had not anticipated. You're better able to deal with it and you try to get a perfect repair. So I think uh, several preoperative factors yeah. play a role in guiding how well surgery is done and also the postoperative course. Is there any variation to your technique depending on uh, if you are forced to operate in the premature period or in like the late preterm period or if the child is day zero or one of life in terms of like placing on bypass, cardioplegia administration or anything like that? Uh, all we do is we probably may cool a little bit more, uh, try and do surgery try and minimize the duration of surgery because the shorter period that they are, the myocardium has to be arrested or a shorter period the vasculature is exposed to non-pulsatile flow, the better for the baby. Uh, and yeah. it also helps you, I mean, maybe the recovery of the lung uh, following a period of no low, low or no ventilation and exposure to various uh, uh, interleukins and other inflammatory mediators uh, to the lung parenchyma may also be minimized by minimizing the duration of cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, there are no specific techniques for bypass other than you selecting the appropriate cannula so that you have adequate flow. Um, you need to flow enough so that you meet the metabolic demands of the uh, end organs. Makes sense. Moving from there into intraoperative factors, could you share the experience at Boston Children's and with regards to intraoperative techniques to minimize low cardiac output state in terms of perfusion, bypass, and I think you spent some time in your talk talking about the minimizing exposure to non-endothelial surfaces and its impact on the inflammatory cascade postoperatively. And of course, as an intensivist, that is one of the major fallouts that we see from the cases with long bypass runs. Can you speak a little bit to what can be done during the operation to mitigate that? Uh, so intraoperatively, I mean, uh, several factors play a role in sort of stabilizing the baby. You have the anesthetic management. You want to make sure that they are, the appropriate anesthetic gases are used, the appropriate ventilation techniques are used prior to the baby being placed on bypass. As far as perfusion goes, you try to minimize the um, the amount of exposure to non-endothelialized surfaces. So you minimize the tubing, you try and minimize the prime volume as much as you can. Uh, you do usually try and do high flow bypass. If there is any concern that your duration of surgery is likely to be prolonged, you may cool a little bit more than uh, operating at uh, near normothermia. And for arch work, you try and maintain uh, regional low flow perfusion if possible, because that gives you that extra edge of time to do a more perfect arch repair. Whereas if you're, if you use circulatory arrest, you're limited by the duration of your circulatory arrest. So you have to uh, 
operate. So maybe doing regional low flow perfusion gives you that additional benefit of having the extra time to make do a perfect repair. And of course, importantly, uh, if you were not happy with the preoperative imaging, it's important to image either using epicardial echo or transesophageal echo prior to going on bypass so that you get a better idea of the anatomy and are able to plan your surgery. Try and do the best repair possible with the anatomy that's based on the anatomic factors and always always image your uh, repair after after coming out bypass to ensure that there are no major residual lesions uh, appropriate uh, inotropic support as needed as you're weaning off bypass appropriate ventilation strategies all of that may help stabilize the baby and try to avoid the low cardiac output state that occurs post-operatively. This is typical nadir about six to 12 hours post-op, where you see this low cardiac output as the myocardium recovers from the various insults it has undergone during uh, cardiopulmonary bypass and myocardial ischemia. Okay. I just had a couple more questions about the intra-op management. Um, uh, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, uh, there is always pulse dosing of steroids pre-bypass and what are your thoughts about um, post-operative use of steroids and is there anything intraoperatively that would give you an indication that the patient might do poorly post-operatively that you would have a higher index of suspicion for like, you know, adjunct therapies? What, uh, at least in our center, we tend to use steroids in all uh, neonates and infants up to one year of age, we routinely use steroids on bypass. Postoperative steroids, I think, depends on how the baby behaves postoperatively. I think clinical judgment plays an important role in decision making and maybe testing to see what their pre uh, what their corticosteroid axis is doing. Maybe the better way to uh, use steroids postoperatively and not routinely use it. I don't know. Is that something different at the various centers you trained in, Ninja? Um, I've, I've trained in a couple of centers which they used routine cord hydrocortisone um, uh, dosing pre and post operatively um, and depending upon the duration of bypass they often considered uh, patients at increased risk with duration of bypass longer duration of bypass and would routinely uh, use post operative hydrocortisone but I know the experience here has been testing the cortisol levels and like you said making sure the access is working well before uh, committing the patient to steroids so I just wanted to see what yeah, um, steroids uh, surg are not surgical their... viewpoint is. Yeah. <laughs> the steroids are not without their own. <laughs> yeah. They're good and they have their good and bad points. So we need Certainly to balance the good with the sword. bad. Yeah. 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 yeah, indeed. We'll take a brief pause in the episode to thank our sponsor for today, Lurie Children's Heart Center. Lurie Children's Heart Center brings the spectrum of cardiac specialists together to care for patients throughout their lifespans. It is one of the top-ranked programs by U.S. News and World Report. Services offered include the fetal cardiology program that ensures families expecting a new baby with heart concerns receive the best diagnostic and counseling care, their heart transplant program, which is one of the leading transplant programs in the country, and the home to the Regenstein Cardiac Care Unit, one of the few cardiac units of its kind in the nation, which was built to ensure the continuity of care from admit to discharge. And so I think uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking about, uh, you know, the uh, RLS scoring and TPS scoring. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if you could uh, just give us a brief insight into the two uh, the differences in the use case in your experience uh, in considering your, you know, your wealth of experience with those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the 
this is a, the it's currently called the residual lesion score it was called previously the technical performance score it is essentially a measure of the severity of the residual lesion and at least at our center for the past 10 years we've been looking at the intraoperative echoes as well as the pre discharge echoes to assign a severity of residual lesions. And this is done by looking at the individual components of each operation and seeing how well they've been repaired. If the repair is optimal, you get a score of one. If there are some minor residual lesion, you get a score of two. And if there are major residual lesion, you get a score of three. And then you sum all the various components of a multi-component operation. And the final score is a summation of these scores. Uh, so for each of the components, based on their location, we have different criteria and it's uh, it has been published and it's available for people to look at. Um, we have found that both for the intraoperative uh, TPS or RLS, as well as the pre-discharge TPS and RLS, uh, if you have a major residual lesion, then you tend to have a longer postoperative course, you tend to have ma major morbidities, and more importantly, you're at a higher risk of mortality. And this, the risk continues post-discharge up to one year, definitely up to one year and even beyond, you're at a higher risk of mortality and a higher risk of reintervention if you left the hospital with a major lesion. So I think this, tool can be used anywhere as in any center as a as a benchmark for how well the repair is. Um, the anatomy of the def defect determines how well the repair can be achieved. There are some defects, for example, the neonatal AV valve, you may never be able to achieve an optimal repair. You may end up with some, at least a mild degree of regurgitation. And so that's when you have to make a decision. Is it acceptable to leave with a mild degree of regurgitation? Or should we prolong, prolong the cardiopulmonary bypass, expose the heart to another period of uh, myocardial ischemia to try and achieve a better result, which may, better repair, which may not be possible. So a lot of judgment is involved, both intraoperatively and also at discharge. If you find, um, what is the cutoff when you decide, okay, this mitral valve repair, looks okay, but it's not going to be long lasting. So maybe the baby or the child will be better served by taking them back and achieving a better repair. Because we have shown that among patients who were taken back either intraoperatively if the residual lesion was repaired and they achieved the optimal or class one score, they did much better. Similarly, if, if they were re-repaired prior to discharge, their need for reintervention decreased or their time to reintervention was longer. So I think it's an important tool uh, that can be used to guide when you go back and bypass, when you reoperate on them, and how frequently you follow them, what imaging modalities you need to use to follow these patients. It's important because if you know that the patient is going with um, mild or moderate residual lesion, perhaps they need to be followed more frequently to determine if the mild has progressed to moderate and the moderate has progressed to severe so that you can intervene them at the appropriate time before clogging the heart and uh, they come in severe heart failure in a poor state for the repair to take place. That's fascinating. Um, uh, I think uh, 
at least in terms of the forefront, what we've experienced is definitely that um, the single ventricle population seem to definitely tolerate any residual lesions worse when compared to a biventricular circulation. Is that something you've seen as well in the data? And... That is definitely the case. Um, the thing with single ventricles is the baby has begins with a physiology, uh, which is not the best of physiologies, and you put them to a, through a major operation, and they end up with a similar physiology. So they have suffered an insult with no change in physiology. So so they tend to tolerate residual lesions worse. Whereas, whereas if you're able to achieve a biventricular repair, even if they have some minor residue, are they able to tolerate it much better? Because you started off with a large VSD and you closed it, you had major arch obstruction, and you fixed it, and even if you have a little bit of residual arch obstruction, they seem to do better. Whereas if you have arch obstruction or AV valve regurgitation in a single ventricle, they tend to do really poorly. And not only do they do poorly, as because the, the single ventricle is now subserving the function of two ventricles and is pumping blood both to the systemic and the uh, pulmonary circulation, and if you add preload and afterload on it, either in the form of regurgitation or arch obstruction, the function tends to deteriorate much more rapidly. So is it safe to say that if it's a single ventricular circulation, the likelihood of them going back to the operating room with a lower RLS score would be much higher as compared to a biventricular circulation? What we will tolerate will be much higher for a biventricular yeah. circulation. Yes, yes. I think we, and the importance about re-intervention, re particularly in the single ventricle population, is identification of residual lesions and re-intervention earlier during the post-operative course has a better outcome than if you wait and hope that they will get better with time, perhaps with additional diuresis and additional afterload reduction, perhaps the regurgitation will become better uh, and then you delay and delay and then you take them back then they tend to do worse so i think decision making early in the post-operative period is also important which is why at least at our center we image frequently and often uh, to help us make the decision and if necessary we do advanced imaging we take them to the cath lab anything to support um, help us make a decision as to when to take them back to the operating room yeah, that's a very good point that you make about the early intervention, pre-intervention, because um, often the spiel sometimes we hear at the bedside is about putting the patient through another pump run so close to a major insult and the inflammatory response that it kicks up. Um, but it seems like the low cardiac output state associated with the residual lesion might be more of a detrimental effect as opposed to uh, going back on pump and fixing the residual lesion that. Yes, that, that is true because the low cardiac output state itself can induce so much uh, various other neurohumoral responses and itself can stimulate the inflammatory cascade. So um, it's uh, your decision has to be, the decision has to be made is going back to the operating room uh, better than a persistent low cardiac output state which cannot be improved further with uh, non-invasive therapies. If the patient were to develop any post-operative complications requiring mechanical circulatory support due to low cardiac output state or residual lesions, is there any insight in the data as to whether if they were to be re-intervened upon in the immediate post-operative period from mechanical circulatory support, they perform worse or better? If um, initiation of mechanical circulatory support earlier than rather than later has improved outcomes, 
and then investiga investigating them with a CAT or other cross-sectional imaging and, of course, echocardiogram early during their mechanical circulatory support phase. Uh, and early intervention definitely has improved outcomes. So the earlier, if you think they are not doing well, uh, it's better to put them on mechanical support rather than uh, adding additional inotropes or going on really high-dose inotropes. Support the heart, let it recover, image and make a decision on intervening and intervene early. Definitely outcomes are better uh, with that approach rather than waiting uh, to put them on support and then investigating them and then taking them back to the operating room for review. What you've uh, shared with us, it seems like the low cardiac output state milieu begins from the pre-surgical phase where we have to take into consideration the patient's maturity, association with other genetic syndromes and their nutritional status. Of course, the biggest factor being their primary anatomical lesion. And, and that affects the surgical planning, the techniques, and as one would expect, a shorter bypass runtime, achieving a near perfect or perfect repair seems to be more commonly associated with less profound low cardiac output state in the post-operative period. Thank you, Dr. Nathan, for sharing your insight. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Vijay Thank you. <laughs> to all our listeners, the references to Dr. Nathan's work on residual lesion scoring will be available in the episode notes. Thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license. <laughs>